0: and welcome to Connecting Conversation with Family Fuse, where we connect with members of the community to gain insight on how to build a better future for all. I'm Jalen Spooner, and today we are talking with Jonas Worth, the Director of Partnerships and Development at the You Can Play project. Good morning, Jonas, and thank you for joining us.
1: Good morning, thanks for having me. Of
0: course, so just to start things off, can you tell me a little bit about the history of You Can Play and what your role is with the organization, what it looks like, that kind of thing?
1: Mm-hmm. So you can play uh, started uh, out of a tragic event, actually, um, with the death of Brendan Burke. And the family members, uh, particularly Patrick Burke and a few of our founders, um, wanted to do something to honor his legacy, because Brendan had uh, just taken the brave decision to come out. He was a university hockey player and starting to do a little bit more advocacy work. to create awareness and more inclusion, primarily in hockey spaces, but in sports in general. Uh, and so after his tragic death, they started this and the NHL wanted to get involved right away. And so through support of NHL players, you know, people started to make, you can play videos and we started to do pride game, pride games. and, And this is almost 10 years ago now, but, um, you know, it has evolved one into, you know, every single sport, you know, pro leagues basically across North America, including the NHL, MLS, minor league hockey, uh, uh, U sports, uh, definitely the Canadian Olympic Committee. And what we do primarily is we try to make sports spaces safer for the LGBTQ community, uh, whether that is a a locker room, whether that's a fan space, whether it's a recreational space, even uh, grassroots level sports. And so, um, our, our product has grown but the philosophy and the legacy of brendan is still pretty much the same you know if you you know can put on the the canada shirt and you and you're good enough well that and you can play then you can play and that's that message still resonates uh in everything that we do whether it's you know uh young people in hockey or nhl players
0: amazing yeah for sure i know the entire hockey community was really um, devastated by the death of Burke. I know his dad was a very powerful man in the game and for sure it's a great organization that you've built um, and definitely something that I see um, in the U sports community. Uh, Everyone loves to come together and do those you can play activities. But um, how did you come to work with you can play? What was the process of getting involved with the organization? Sorry.
1: For me, it's really interesting because I've been a uh, university assistant coach and head coach and then um, athletic director for about 16 years. And that was my primary role. I I mostly spent time uh, with U sports and CCA organizations before moving down to the States to take on some NCAA roles. And I was just accidentally, I met some people at the NHL at some pride games in New York. And we talked about what we were doing on university campuses down there in the area of diversity and inclusion in sport. And so I had some interesting experiences at a few NHL games down there, and they weren't good. And so I wrote uh, to one of my new friends at the uh, NHL executive level, and I just said, hey, we're doing this at the university level. I've had experience with teams in the past where... If you're able to provide an environment where people can, can bring their true self to the sport experience, whether that's a, as a coach or a fan, people are going to want to go back. People are going to want to be a part of that. And so I think this could work for the NHL. And before I know it, um, the NHL was calling me up and saying, hey, there's this job that you could play and we'd like you to take it. And so it's a, it was a very unusual path to you can play because I think there's some amazing you know, diversity, equity, and inclusion experts out there in the field of sport. But my background in coaching and, uh, you know, university uh, athletics leadership is valuable in the sense that I've been in that environment and I've had some success implementing these inclusive policies all across the board. You know, whether you're talking about uh, LGBTQ inclusion, you know, the, the question of race, social class, indigenous identity, And, um, you know, that's what makes this work so exciting, because now I've been able to see the challenges from both sides and actually look at those solutions. So I've been here almost exactly two years now uh, and specifically working with Canadian partners as well as, you know, NHL and other soccer products. And uh, it's been uh, a fantastic journey.
0: That's amazing to hear. here. So we know the importance of inclusion in sport and how it can really bring together people that may not have joined sport otherwise. But what does it really look like in the sporting community um, in reference to fans, players, ownership, stuff like that?
1: In any organization, whether it's in sport or beyond, you, if people are not able to bring their true self to a meeting, to a, any sort of collaboration, they don't perform as well right? And the, and inclusion in sport definitely has that angle to it. Because sports people are always thinking about performance, right? The, you, you play to win the game. Inclusion has a, has, has a space there, right? Because if I am, you know, uh, a young man like uh, Jarrett Anderson-Dolan, who has two moms, and I'm hearing homophobic language, even growing up in my locker room, there's a there's a sort of cognitive dissonance that happens there. You you kind of feel a little bit of anxiety as opposed to that typical family environment that you want to feel in a locker room. And when you can create spaces where people can bring their true self, they perform better. The same thing can be said for fans. You know, if I'm going to a game and I want to if I want to raise my children in a certain way, I want to bring my children to that experience doesn't matter if I'm a member of the LGBTQ community or not. If I hear homophobic, sexist, racist language, I don't want to go back. That doesn't reflect the values of sport. That doesn't reflect the values of sport that we try to teach university athletes like yourselves so they can then excel in group environments outside of sport after their uh, you know, experience is over as an athlete. And the same thing goes for fans. So I think, you know, that part of inclusion, whether you're talking about in the arenas, in the stands or in the locker room, is really important. But we also see the power of sport and leaders uh, in sport to influence positive social change right? or social development. And we've seen you know, social justice movements in sport become all that more powerful in the last 12 months. And I think we don't need our sports leaders to become inclusion experts for them to say, hey, this is, this is important. And this is not acceptable behavior anymore. And even if you, you know, are experiencing this level of, you know, bullying on Twitter from an anonymous account, this isn't the norm. And and we are able to stand for it. And I think that's the the, the double faceted way that sport has a, you know, a role to play in this, uh, you know, fight for diversity, equity, and inclusion.
0: For sure, that's very well said. Um, I completely agree. Uh, The dressing room, I know not so much on the women's side, but it's still there, but definitely in the men's dressing rooms, you can, you hear all sorts of stories about um, homophobic language and actions and stuff like that. And people might not mean it in a very malicious way, you know, like just kind of playing it off as locker room talk, but they don't understand the kind of language and really effect that that can take on a young person's mental health. So being mindful of that is very important. And I think it definitely starts with a culture change in the dressing room and in how people talk and reference LGBTQ players. So kind of shifting towards the mental health aspect. Um, what has the You Can Play project seen in the relationship of mental health and sports, especially when inclusion, exclusion is factored in? I know you touched on it, but have you seen kind of that mental health aspect really factor in to inclusion, just so that people can kind of hear about um, what effects it really has on a player or a fan. Uh,
1: well, absolutely, because we've seen through research, uh, a number of research, whether it's here in Canada or abroad, the impact that you know being in an inclusive environment has on LGBTQ teenagers, for example never mind participation in sport, because as soon as we, if you want to talk about attrition in teenage sport populations, it's threefold for the LGBTQ community, typically because they're not growing up in inclusive environments. And on the flip side, you know, when we talk to young people who have been able to bring their true self, who've been able to be uh, openly open with their teammates about who they are, and because of their upbringing, because they had uh, uh, you know, parents who are able to support them uh, in being open about their true identity, they tend to um, have, you know, less issues in the areas of mental health. And let's let's also give space to, you know, discussing how the stigmas attached to talking about mental health have decreased. And we're still working on that, right? We see programs. Like we have in Canada, like well, let's talk. you know, and, and sometimes there there's controversial ways of of you know working those programs in. But ultimately, what we're saying is like, these are things that we need to address. These are things that we need to address in sport and beyond. Uh, and and being aware of that and the impact of that, you talked about language. You talked about the concept of impact versus intent. even in the the women's locker rooms that I've worked in, when people say something that is, casually homophobic let's use a really common one. Oh, that's so gay if i don't say something in that moment as a coach as a colleague such as what do you mean by that right if i don't say something at that point then it might resonate negatively and have a a, a, a harsh impact uh, on the player who maybe identifies as a gay person right and they might be coming from a space where they had no intent to harm their favorite colleague, their favorite teammate, but the impact is still there. And that's why we have to, when we're looking at language, we always have to analyze impact versus intent, whether you're talking about microaggressions, whether you're talking about casual homophobia, and those do have an impact on an athlete, both conscious and subconscious, right? A player who might be maybe not open to their teammates, but comfortable at home, right? Who, who's, you know, who's at least be able to be an openly, you know, uh, a gay person at home might still suffer from that, even though they say they don't. And and so looking at, you know, the impact of our language on mental health in the area of inclusion um, is getting easier to address, but it's still something that we have to address all the time because as a university coach... I have probably had to intervene with a player, whether it was men's sports or women's sports, every year for the last sixteen years. It's not it's not really changed because a lot of times people don't realize even the language that you're using is homophobic. And that, you know, is something that we're constantly addressing and something we're now addressing more and more in our training programs with you can play.
0: Yeah, that's that's awesome. Um, that you guys are taking that initiative against these sort of microaggressions, because they do run deeper than a lot of people know. And I think that really shows in the stats that I found on your website that says that 24% of LGBTQ plus youth say that they play a school sport compared to 68% of all youth. So how does sport culture work in turning away these children? And what does You Can Play do to break that narrative and really say, hey, you don't have to fall into these stereotypical insults that these people are saying at you. If you want to play sports, you can play sports. If you want to do art, you can play or you can uh, make art, that kind of stuff. So yeah, just kind of break that down for me.
1: Well, first and foremost, uh, you know, sport from a youth level from the very young ages is very gendered. And because it's so gendered, like we don't have a lot of examples of um, you know, non-gendered sports leagues for ages five to 12. We're getting there there are huge social benefits to having you know everyone play together from 5 to 12 but for now because you have under 5 boys and under 5 girls separated they they immediately become breeding grounds for toxic masculinity on the on the men's side in particular and sometimes later in life that can lead to copycat behavior even on the women's side so that's one of the issues that i think we're going to start to see some changes in people are going to start to realize that you know ultimately, when you're in the development phase, ages five to twelve, you know especially when there's no physiological differences, there are actual social benefits to integrating that. And you know, that's something that 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 is you know really important uh, to address. And then, you know, thinking about um, you know, beyond toxic masculinity, looking at behaviors in sport, I said to a player, you know, we were talking about emotional control and I said to a player, I was like, you don't go to your grandma's house and scream, uh, you know, horrible language to her. But the moment you step on a on a soccer field or or the, the, you know, the ice, it's OK to scream and yell. So some of the normal normalized behaviors that we have in sport are entrenched in sport culture and sport history but in reality, if you look at the you know people who play at the highest level, they don't typically have those behaviors. And so it's making those connections between the top product, the where everybody wants to be, even though less than 1% of us will make it there, what makes them a success? It's not that they use homophobic language. It's not that they scream and yell, right? And so it's making those connections that I think we're just starting to get some progress there. And so as, if we start to copy the highest level and the highest level of performance where usually when somebody has an outburst, they have to apologize for it and say it's a mistake. And usually they they pay for it in terms of the results. Right. You, you don't see a lot of examples of people losing their minds and then they, they win the game. It, it's just it's, it's very, you know, it's pretty consistent outcomes with people who have emotional control, who then become winners, people who use inclusive language, people who create family environments in their locker room nobody ever lifts the stanley cup and says oh i hate all my teammates oh i don't feel like i can be i can be my true self here no they always talk about how they can be themselves in the locker room and they're you know this is part of a family and that is the environment we're looking to replicate starting from the young age it's never too soon to start talking about inclusion in sport and and that's why i think some of these developments that we have with getting rid of gender is are going to be really fantastic.
0: Yeah, I completely agree. Um, just kind of moving towards even more of the inclusion question, um, How? what has the You Can Play project experienced with in the intersectionality of racism and homophobia in sports?
1: That's a fantastic question that I think people like George Laroque will be able to answer for you. Because... You know, we talk all the time about the the importance of developing allies and the journey of allyship, right? You know, it's not a noun, it's an action, it's a verb. And, and you know, we don't have enough openly gay players in the NHL or the NFL or, you know, we, there's only, in North America, there's only one openly gay man in, in uh, men's soccer, men's professional soccer right now. And so, you know, we are sort of, you know, in an environment where we have to, you know, rely on on allies and the skills of allies and allyship, they work across the board when you're talking about underrepresented groups in sport. So a lot of the crossover between, you know, and this came up especially last year uh, when we were talking about, you know, how we can support the Black Lives Matter movement in sport how we can address issues of social class, indigenous identity. In different parts of Canada, you have really strong influential uh, newcomer to Canada populations that are not necessarily well represented in our national teams. How do we address that? And and so these skills that we develop uh, for LGBTQ inclusion at the base level, respect and accountability, getting comfortable being uncomfortable, seeding the space, leveraging your privilege and your power, those work for every variety of allyship that you can think of. And so we, whenever we do trainings, whenever we teach people, we say, hey, think about, this is a skill that applies to everything that you do in the sport community, not just for you doing a pride night. This applies across the board and when you can be even a coach of teenagers who's respectful of other people's first language, social class, you know, race, ethnicity, religion, everything, uh, you're going to provide a more inclusive uh, environment where people will excel and perform better.
0: Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Um, you mentioned privilege, and I know some people have kind of the wrong idea of what privilege is, whether it's white privilege, straight privilege, And just kind of how can you um, sort of take ownership of that privilege, acknowledge that you have it, and how can you use that privilege to open up the world of sports for everyone? And I think, like you said, it starts in the dressing room with just taking accountability for your own words and your teammates' words. But how can you really use that privilege?
1: Well, first and foremost, I think because privilege is becoming a dirty word, an an offensive term that you label someone, people have to stop taking offense, right? So like, from appearances, you know, I look like the most privileged sector in Canadian society, right? And I have to be aware of that, no matter what's going on behind the scenes. You know, maybe maybe I do have uh, an invisible disability. That's very possible, you know? Uh, struggles with mental health, especially during COVID, extremely common. You know, maybe I have a, a different disability. Doesn't matter. I have to be aware and keep my uh, privilege in check, and maybe try to leverage that. Right. So when I walk into a locker room uh, and 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 have that leadership position, how do I leverage that uh, that space and amplify and and you know, seed the space to some of the affected communities who don't look like me. And I have to do that every day because we all come to the table with some form of unconscious bias. And when you become an adult and when you get into these leadership positions, you have to be able to keep that in check. And it's something you have to uh, reference every day and you have to continue to work at it every day. And honestly, it's the things that you do when no one's looking that actually matter the most and for me right now like even as a coach of university men uh sometimes that's just taking a daily stock of what my privilege is right first of all i have you know the ability to um you know have a salary and then also coach on the side that's a privilege i have access to canadian public education that's a privilege that i have over my american colleagues right Mm -hmm. I, you know, went to a very good public school. It was, you know, it really prepared me well for exams and to getting into a better university. All of that and being conscious of that when I walk into a room is totally relevant to the experience. And, you know, privilege doesn't have to be a bad word. It has, you know, if you can turn it into a positive, if you're able to leverage it and improve the sport experience for the people around you.
0: 100% and, um... I think it's really interesting when you said, um, it's what you do when no one's watching, because I think a lot of athletes have heard that quote and taking it to their workout schedules and their nutrition, but then their care They leave the character out. You know what I mean? Like it's a very physical sports, a very physically demanding activity, but I think that's a really good point that. It's not just what you do in the gym when no one's watching on the ice when no one's watching or the field. It's also what you do in your everyday conversations when when people aren't really expecting those deep conversations. So I think that's, that's a very good point. Um, Just kind of on the more positive side, um, what positive things has the You Can Play project seen since the beginning of the project?
1: Well, what we have seen, and I apologize for the background construction noise. I don't know who's drilling. They they waited until you called to start, actually. <laughs> um, you know, we have come a long way from just making a video that you can play provides a script for, right? What people would maybe label as performative has had the impact of sports franchises sports people looking for authentic engagement with their local lgbtq community because they see it as mattering they see it as mattering more than ever people want to and sports franchises leagues everybody are trying to avoid this sort of performative aspect of just doing a pride night pride night is not enough anymore right what we're looking for is that year-round consistent commitment and whereas In 2012, if you would have told me that every NHL team was going to make a video, you can play video, we would have jumped up and down for joy. In 2021, we know that, although it takes a lot more work, we know that everybody's also on board with doing a lot more. And that year-round consistent commitment, not in relationship with You Can Play, but actually with your local LGBTQ community, is what we strive for with every single team now. You know, so when we, um, you know, do an event with an NHL team, we always make sure to bring on the local, uh, you know, community and, and make those connections so that they end up going to more games than Pride Night. And that is, the, you know, the evolution of You Can Play is, one, it's year-round, it's consistent commitment, and two, the impact is felt at all levels, from grassroots to the pros, at the local level. And that that local connection is really important to us.
0: Awesome, so just to wrap things up here, um, last question. So what would be the, what are the next steps that you can play is looking to do kind of tangibly in sort of any extensions or expansions going on? Just kind of walk us through that.
1: Well, I have to say the the pivot that we've had to make in the digital space since the, the, the COVID era started has actually helped us put together materials Um, so that we can eventually digitize some of our training programs so that we have a greater reach. If you could imagine how difficult it might be, even with, you know, these Zoom and and Microsoft Teams digital meetings, virtual meetings, we've had a greater reach, right? We've been able to go beyond NHL teams, NHL administrative staff. I mean, we've done panels with, you know, local high schools, minor hockey league uh, organizations. you know, physical education teachers, we've been able to have a greater reach. But if you can imagine, as that grows, the availability of us to do a live training can be very difficult. So we've taken that expertise, such as like we we did some uh, indigenous coaching workshops here in the, the Pacific Northwest of Canada. We've taken a lot of that material and learning and we're going to digitize it into something that someone can do on their own time so that Yeah, maybe we won't go back to back to back to back all day, every day doing these training sessions, uh, you know, uh, except for certain situations where they have to be tailor-made. And now we're hoping to put this together so that somebody can, in their own time, you know, pick up their phone and do a You Can Play training session, whether that is everyone in their first year in the OHL, whether that is all U-sports teams and CCAA teams in August before you know, your eligibility starts, you know, to be able to do that is going to be incredible. And that we've actually just brought some people on board who's going to take all that material that I have uh, and that we have used and put it into, you know, almost like an app and and a digital training app. And so that is the future. And, you know, that's not really public yet, but um, we see this sort of COVID pivot that we've been able to make as an opportunity to make that happen now. Mm-hmm. And, if you combine that with traditional elements of Pride nights uh, celebratory events like you know are having all your local sports teams participate in a pride parade, if you put all that together, again, it comes back to that consistent commitment and having a greater impact at all levels of sport. because if you are, you know, I, I don't know if you remember what it was like growing up in a you know volunteer based and run uh, hockey organization. It probably would have been difficult to pay for, you know, expensive training programs. But if we can provide those through some of our major partnerships for free to certain populations, then the impact is going to be greater. And that's what we're looking. We're looking to create the next generation of athletes, coaches and fans who get the importance of inclusion and become better people when they become adults.
0: That's awesome. Um, it's a really good step that you're taking. And um, if anyone listening wants to learn more about these kind of initiatives that You Can Play is putting on, you can find the website link in the summary bio that I'll be writing. And um, yeah, so I just wanted to thank Jonas for his time. Uh, it was wonderful talking to you and kind of going into depth about sport culture and the homophobia and racism that is intrinsically built into it and kind of figuring out ways to. To break those down and move forward as a community and as a society. So, thank you, Jonas.
1: Thank you very much for having me.